This morning, our friend Jared read to you a scripture out of Isaiah 53. It's a, a, a scripture that Isaiah was, was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, referring to the coming of Christ and what his life would be like. And I would say to you this, that, that none of those descriptions that he read about Jesus are something that you would want on your tombstone. <laughs> uh, think, think just real quick about some of the phrases that we heard Jared read. Uh, Jesus was despised. He was rejected by men. How many times have you gone to a cemetery and looked at a tombstone and it said, here lies so-and-so. He was despised and rejected. It's not what you want on your tombstone. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. Uh, he was one from whom men would hide their faces. They would turn and go the other way. He was, a, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We saw no value in him. Jesus was a man who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. All of these, these phrases that, that Isaiah included, he says, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. All the wrath of God that we deserved was poured out upon Jesus on that cross. And then Isaiah kind of concludes that section by talking about why Jesus did that. He did that because we, like sheep, have turned astray. We've all gone to our own ways. And so the Lord laid upon him all of our sin. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. This morning as we look at this passage in 1 Peter, it's going to, you're going to hear some of that same terms, those same phrases that Peter is going to pull from Isaiah and, and include in this motif. And we're going to look at a, a scripture today that I think sometimes has been misinterpreted, misapplied. Um, it's a passage that talks about uh, servants and their masters. Uh, some Bibles will call them slaves and their masters. Um, there have been some pastors that want to preach this and say, this justifies slavery. And I think of nothing farther from the truth of God's word than that. This is a passage that, that is not approval of slavery, but it's an example of godly grace in the midst of man's wickedness. Slavery was very common in Peter's day. Uh, there was a number of different reasons that people, people would, would be uh, cast into slavery, and we'll talk about some of that this morning. But in no way is this passage God's stamp of approval upon slavery. Some will go back and grab the passage we looked at last week where it talks about being, in, being subject to, being in submission to human institutions, which God has ordained. And they'll say, so here's a second institution, slavery, which God has ordained. And that is a, it's a lie from the pit of hell. That is not at all what Jesus is trying to say to us through the, the book of 1 Peter here. Uh, this, this passage is a portion of, of a three-part section included in, in Peter's letter. The, the first one was talking about submission to, uh, of subjects to to the, to the government. That's in verses 13 through 17. Today's passage talks about submission of, of slaves to masters. That's verses 18 to 25. And then next week, we'll come back and talk about submission of the wife to the husband in chapter, eight, or chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The first section dealing with, with the government authorities is about God-ordained authority. I think the second section we're going to look at today is about God-ordained grace. The theme of this is not slavery. The theme of this is grace in the midst of suffering. What Peter's going to do today, guys, and it's important that you grab this from the outset. Peter is going to take an extreme abuse and use that to illustrate extreme grace. Let me say that again. He's going to take an extreme abuse, slavery, wickedness, man at his worst, and use that to express and to illustrate an extreme grace, which is God at his best. This is not an endorsement of slavery. This is showing how wicked slavery is and how awesome God's grace is. So keep that in mind as we walk through this passage together this morning. He, he, he's, he's going to talk today about this ordained grace. Next week, we'll come back and talk about God-ordained love that is expressed between two people in a marriage. All three of these, God-ordained authority, God-ordained grace, and God-ordained love, are all done for the same purpose, so that is for the glory of God and for the salvation of others. All three of these also flow from the same heart, a heart that says it's less about me and it's more about God and others. And all three of these, these, these three-part series, all three things, are calling for submission to someone who is flawed. Someone who doesn't have it all together. Someone who is undeserving at times. 
But we do that in order to honor the one who is perfect, which is our Heavenly Father. So today's passage, again, is about slaves and masters, not condoning slavery, but he's going to use this extreme abuse to, ex- to express this, this extreme grace that God gives to us. There is a temptation among pastors today, and I've heard this recently, where pastors will want to soften the issue of slavery. They'll say, well, slavery in, in the Bible times was not like slavery in the South. Slaves were treated really good in Bible days, and, and they were given a lots of freedoms and lots of things, and, and they began to try to soften slavery. But here's what happens. If you want to do that, and I think it's not biblical, but if you wanted to do that, as you soften slavery, you cheapen the grace that Peter is trying to express. Slavery in, in Jesus' day was not an easy thing. It was not just a, 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 you know, hey, this is just a, you're going to work from somebody the rest of your life. That's not what slavery was in that day. And so let's talk a little bit about the historical context of slavery and, and what that was like. In, in, in Peter's day, slavery was, was very common. It was something that was, was seen a lot in that, in that culture. And so it provides a perfect illustration for Peter to use to talk about this great grace of God. There will be many reasons that a person might become enslaved, that he might find himself as a slave. Uh, sometimes it was poor financial decisions where a man got himself in debt to someone. And he became an indentured servant, somebody that had to work for that man to try to pay off his debt. Uh, in his poor financial decisions, he would sell himself to pay off the debt. Sometimes he would sell his whole family to pay off those debts. And you would find a whole family in slavery. Sometimes a man would end up in slavery because he'd been kidnapped. Maybe as, a, as a, a, an act of war. Uh, He was captured as a prisoner of war, brought back to a different land and and, and forced into slavery. And sometimes they were just born into slavery. Here's the thing you need to know about slavery in this day is that if I was a slave and I was owned by somebody else and I had a child, Janet and I uh, produced a child, that child then belonged to that owner. That child wasn't born into freedom. That child was born as a, as a, a, a possession of the, the master. And so slavery was a, a terrible thing. The treatment of slaves, and, and again, some have tried to soften this, but the treatment of slaves was, was not a good thing. Now, in Peter's day, there were some that were slaves that were very educated. Some were doctors or lawyers uh, or had a good profession. Some slaves were actually more educated than their masters. But they lacked the wealth, they lacked the power, or they were born into a family that, that they were born into slavery. But, but slaves in this day were allowed to be educated. They were allowed to excel. Uh, they became more valuable to their masters if they were educated. And so unlike slavery in the South where, where they were not allowed to be educated, not allowed to learn to read or to write, in, in Bible days they were allowed to do that because they were seen as more valuable in, in, that, um, in that way. Some slaves in this day were allowed to earn their freedom. They were allowed to make enough money to be paid a decent wage maybe, to earn the money to buy their own freedom. But, but they weren't required to be set free, but some masters allowed them to do that. But just as there were some that were treated well, the majority were treated rough. Uh, they were owned for life. There was no chance that their owner, their wicked owner, would ever let them go free. Uh, if you were a slave, then they owned your spouse and your children as well. Uh, you were treated like the property of the master. And many were beaten uh, without any recourse. Many were abused, uh, raped, maimed, killed. These slaves had no legal rights in the courts. And what happens is some of these slaves that were allowed to be educated came to hear the gospel. Some that that weren't educated, the Spirit of God opened their hearts to the gospel to understand the gospel. And now they are believers in Christ. But they are still enslaved and they are still trapped in this awful life. The gospel provided them a taste of freedom and yet they're still the property of another. And so Peter writes about how to to look at this and how to, to, to take this terrible atrocity called slavery and to illustrate this incredible thing called grace. Now, I've told you last week that that as Peter's writing this section, this is meat for the mature. This is not something that's easily accepted. It's not something that's easily followed or easily lived out. It's meat for those who are mature. And so in this this passage, we're going to see that this this context of slavery is a wicked thing. But Peter's going to tap into that wickedness to show us the, the excellencies of God's grace. Now, we can't apply this to our lives today. 
And this is where I think pastors who want to soften the, the issue of slavery and say, well, this is really just God talking about how to relate to your boss at work. That's not all Peter's trying to do. But it does apply to us at work. It applies to us in any relationship where we are under authority and how we are to respond to those who treat us well and how we respond to those who treat us poorly. And so it can be applied to, to our personal relationships. It can be applied, applied to our, our work relationships. But that was not Peter's original intent. His original intent is to show you how wicked that is and how good God's grace is. So let's look at what Peter says in this passage now that we've got a little bit of background behind us. In, in 1 Peter chapter 2... We'll begin today in verse 18. He says this, he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. We've been taught, or at least I've been taught most of my life, that respect is something that is earned. You ever heard that? Respect is earned. You want me to respect you, then you've got to earn my respect. Here Peter says just the opposite, though. Listen to what he says. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, even to the unjust, the undeserving, the ones that have not earned your respect. Here he's saying that respect is not just earned, but it is offered, whether it's earned or not. Now, right away, okay, right away, when we say that, guess what happens? There's a pushback inside of us. Ah, that ain't never going to happen for me. Well, it's not going to happen unless we desire to be godly more than we desire to feed our flesh. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit to accomplish anything that we're going to talk about here today. So, so what he's going to say here is that, that, that this, this, this respect is, is not just for those who earn it, but for those that don't. And that's what grace is really all about. Remember, the theme of today is, is the grace of God. So right away, Peter's going to get the attention of his readers. And he's going to say, you owe respect okay, to your master, whether he's earned it or not, whether he's good and gentle or whether he is unjust. I want you to, to subject yourself with all respect to that one. Again, that's impossible for us to do apart from the help of the Holy Spirit who comes alongside of us and tries to help us in this process. And then he goes on. He tells us why that we should do that. He says, for this is a gracious thing, the ESV says. Literally in the Greek it says, this is grace. We've added the word thing, okay? But, but what he's saying here is that why do we do this? Why, why should servants be subjected to their masters with all respect? To the good ones and to the bad ones? Why should we do that? Because this is grace. It's grace when we're mindful of of God. Literally, again, in the Greek, it says this, for the sake of your conscience toward God. In other words, when we, when, we, when we live the way that God tells us to live because of our conscience, we want to keep a clear conscience before God. We want to, to live with, a, a God, with our God-given conscience clean. So the only reason that I would do this is not because my flesh wants to do it, but because God's commanded me to do it, and I want to stay clean before God. I don't want to sin before God. I don't want to have the wrong attitude toward others. I don't want to be a stumbling block, but I want to be a stepping stone so people can come to Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about this, it's, it's something that's going to push back against our flesh, that we're going to have to say to the Lord, Lord, I can't do this on my own. I don't even want to do this on my own. I'm going to need your help. And the reason that we do it is that it's grace. It demonstrates grace to those who unfairly treat us. You got a boss at work that treats you less than what you think you deserve? How do you respond to that? Well, Peter says you submit to him because he's your boss and you respect him. You offer him the respect that he hasn't even earned. Why? Because that's demonstrating God's grace. It's a gracious thing. It keeps your conscience clear before God. You see, it's only by grace that we can endure this sorrow of suffering without compromising our convictions. So we do it with God in mind. Now, remember this, okay? We said this last week. We need to say it again today. If your boss asks you to do something sinful, at that point you have to draw the line and say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to, to participate in this because it, it, it violates my conscience, because it crosses the line. You ask me to, to, to do something that's, that's immoral or something that's, that's sinful, then I can't do that. Why? Because my number one allegiance is to God. My number one allegiance is to him, and then it's to you. 
And so we, we serve as long as he doesn't ask us to cross that line. And so he says this, he says, For it's a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So this is not just the run-of-the-mill suffering. This is not just, I got a cold and I don't feel well. This is suffering for something that you haven't done wrong. You've done good, and now you suffer for that. You, you took your stand for the Lord. You followed your conscience. You followed Scripture. You followed the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And now you're, you're experiencing some kind of backlash for that. And he says, when you serve and you live for the glory of God, you demonstrate the grace of God, but you also set yourself up in, in this world maybe to endure some sorrow. And you suffer unjustly, undeserved. But it's in the midst of this, guys, and this is what we got to grab, okay? This is so important. It's in the midst of that suffering unjustly that grace is best demonstrated. Most of us want to avoid suffering altogether. But it's in the midst of those struggles. It's in the midst of that, that being treated unfairly. And the way that we respond to that, that shows people what Jesus really looks like. We'll come back at the end today and talk about how that Jesus demonstrated this and, and how that Stephen demonstrated this. And we'll look at their lives and how they did that. But I want you to know that, that it's in the midst of our deepest, darkest, most difficult battles that grace is demonstrated the, the best. If somebody loves you and treats you well and promotes you every three weeks to a new position, it's easy to love them and treat them good. What's difficult is when we're treated unfairly to continue to offer grace, to continue to offer respect, to continue to, to put ourselves in that position. It's, it's tough, and most of us don't want to do that. He goes on to say in, uh, in verse 20, for what credit is it, what benefit, what credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten for it, and you choose to endure. So here's what he's saying. If you've done wrong and your master's beating you, I'm not talking to you, Peter says. That's not, you're not the one I'm addressing. It, what good is it if, if you sin and you're beaten and you endure? You're just getting what you deserve. Grace is not demonstrated in that at all. You just stand up and take it like a man. Okay, but you deserved it. You did something wrong and now you're suffering. That There's no room for grace to be displayed there. You're just going to endure what you deserve. But, he says, if when you do good, okay, and, and that doing good, he's talking about doing God's will. Here you're doing God's will. You're doing what God's assigned for you to do, and you suffer for it, and you endure. This is a gracious thing. Again, literally, this is grace in the sight of God. So look what he's saying. He's saying, you, you go to work. You're in a relationship, you, you, you're underneath somebody else, and, and you get caught doing something you shouldn't do, and they come down hard on you, and you go, well, yeah, you're right, I did it, I'm going to take it like a man, and I'll demonstrate God's grace to them. No, you're just getting what you deserve. But you stand and you do what God's words called you to do, and you're called out on that, and you're punished for doing right, for standing up for what's right, for doing what is right. And now you're going to be hammered because you took a stand for your faith. You, 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 you maintained a clear conscience before God. You, you lived out your faith in the sight of those in the workplace. When you do good and you suffer, and as a result of that you endure the suffering, this is the grace that's pleasing to God. This is the grace in sight of God. And then he goes farther in verse 21. He says this, For to this... Okay, now what's he talking about? To this, doing good and suffering and enduring and demonstrating grace. To that, to, to this suffering and demonstrating grace, he says, to this you have been called. Gee whiz, if I knew what I was getting into, I don't know if I would have signed up for this. If I knew what, what being a believer was going to cost me, if I knew what, what, what standing with Jesus was going to cost I don't know that I'd sign up for that. Well, here's what he's saying. He says, this is what you've been called. This is a part of the Christian life, is, is to, to do what's right and let the chips fall where they may. And if you suffer, then you suffer the way Jesus suffered. 
You don't suffer the way the world suffers. And he's about to draw that distinction here. Look what he's going to say. For to this you have been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you. Let's just stop right there and let's be honest with each other. When Christ suffered, was that just? Was it fair? Did he deserve that? If there's ever been a person who didn't deserve to be mistreated, didn't deserve to be treated unfairly, didn't deserve to to, to experience unjust suffering, if there was ever a person who didn't deserve that, it was Jesus. But he says, you've been called to this because Christ was called to this, and we are called to imitate Christ. Christ demonstrated grace at its fullest, Not when he was doing miracles, but when he was being persecuted for doing right. When he was hanging upon the cross. I mean, this has weighed heavy on me all week long, but when he was hanging on the cross, guys, and every bit of wrath that my sin deserved. Let that that sink in for a minute. What does your sin deserve? Punishment, death, eternal separation from God. Everything that I deserved, the penalty that, that, that should have been mine and yours and every person in this world, the penalty that we deserve was placed upon him and he endured that. The, the suffering of the cross, the, the, the nails and the hanging and the dying gasping for air and all that Jesus went through on the cross, that was tiny compared to this this sin and the consequences and the wrath of that sin being poured out on Jesus. You say, well, man, some people just have a rough life. That's nothing compared to what hell's going to be. And that's what we deserved. And Jesus took literally hell upon himself because he stood in my place. So look what it says. He suffered for you. In your place. It was a substitutionary death where Jesus died in our place. That was grace. Jesus taking my sin and me being given eternal life. Undeserved on his part. Undeserved on my part. He didn't deserve to take my sin and I certainly don't deserve the righteousness of Christ and the salvation that he offers. So here's Peter saying, This is what you've been called to. Because Christ suffered for you. And look at this. And he left you an example so that you might what? Follow in his steps. You say, that's a path I would rather avoid. Anybody here rather avoid that? I know I would. And the only reason that I would choose to walk that path is if I know that somehow that's going to bring glory to God and that it might lead somebody else to Jesus. And that's our motivation for doing what Peter's asking us to do here today. Guys, this is is tough. This is meat for the mature. This is tough to chew sometimes and tough to digest. But he says, we've been called to this because Christ suffered for us. That was the most unjust thing in the world. But he did it to leave us an example so that we might follow in his steps. You see, Jesus was perfect, and yet he suffered unjustly. We are imperfect, and we will suffer unjustly if we choose to walk with the Lord. To be a friend of Jesus is to not be a friend of this world. To to, to walk with Jesus is to be persecuted the way that Jesus was persecuted. You may not be nailed to a cross, but but you will suffer some persecution. And and, and I would challenge us to, to think this through. If we're living a life that is totally free of any kind of pushback from this world, why is that? And how is that? You see, Jesus lived out his life not in some bubble, insulated from the world and insulated from persecution he didn't run off to some monastery and and hide from the world and withdraw from everything else he lived this out in the midst of a world that was hostile against him at every turn he could heal somebody and give them back their sight or let them walk and they would come after him because he did it on sunday or on the sabbath 
Everything he did, they fought against. Everything that he, he sought to accomplish, the world pushed back against. He didn't just do this in a bubble. The, the answer is not to insulate ourselves from, from the world. The, the, the real challenge is to do this in the midst of a world that needs to know Jesus and yet hates the thought that they need to know Jesus. So he calls us to follow in his steps. And then he tells us, here's the Isaiah passage starting to come back in here. He says, he, Jesus, committed no sin. He was perfect. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus spoke truth. Even when speaking the truth cost him dearly. He was reviled. He was verbally abused. And yet he did not revile in return. We see no retaliation in Jesus. You say, well, Jesus was just a passive guy. <laughs> Jesus was not just passive. But when they reviled him and they abused him, he didn't abuse them in return. That's what the world does, right? Everywhere from our playgrounds with children playing to the highest levels of authority and government that we have, we have been taught, it's been modeled for us, that when somebody reviles you, you revile in return. When somebody makes you suffer, you threaten in return. You intimidate them. That's what's been taught to us. But that's not what Jesus modeled for us. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. He didn't respond the way the world responds. He didn't do what everybody expected that, him, that he would do. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. No intimidation going back at them. You say, how in the world do you do that? How do you endure this much without sinning? He committed no sin. How do you do that? How do you suffer like this without sinning? And here's the key. And if you write in your Bibles or you mark in your Bibles, you may want to underline this. Here's how he did it. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. If you want to be able to live what Peter is calling us to live today, there's only going to be one way that you do that, and that is that you've got to entrust yourself to the Father. Now, in the Greek, if you go back to the Greek in this, that it was originally written in, that word himself is not supplied in the Greek. We've, we've supplied that as, a, as a, an addition to kind of help us understand what he's talking about. But, but maybe it was left out for a purpose. Jesus continued entrusting everything his suffering his situation his life his enemies all of that he entrusted to the father who judges justly here's what peter's saying the way that jesus could endure the sorrow and the suffering and the unjust treatment was he knew who was in control he knew at a moment's notice god could stop all of that in a moment's notice, all God had to do was just to breathe and all those enemies would drop dead. Jesus knew. He says, I could call 10,000 angels and this would be over with. But what he did instead of retaliating, what he did instead of intimidating, is he trusted himself and his situation and even his enemies into the hands of God. Knowing that God would set the book straight one day. He would judge justly. Now, please understand, Jesus was not saying, one day you're going to get it. Oh, you may have me pinned down now. You may be nailing me to the cross right now. You may be thinking you're winning right now, but I'm going to have the last word, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to get you. That's the threats that they said he didn't do. He just said, my father knows best, and my father will set the books straight, and there will come a day when I will be fully exonerated, fully exonerated. That day is coming, by the way. The Bible says there's coming a day that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. What? That Jesus is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Listen, 
what we forget sometimes in the midst of our suffering is this. The very people that were nailing Jesus to the cross, the very ones who were standing at the foot of the cross hurling insults at Jesus, those are the ones that Jesus came to die for. The ones that that he was enduring the wrath of God to cover their sins, you and me, those were the ones that he came to die for. We were those ones. He wasn't dying by mistake. He wasn't dying without a purpose. He wasn't suffering without a reason. He was going through all of that for you and for me. And so it says when he was reviled, he didn't revile. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he just continued entrusting himself. Now look at that word continued. What does that tell you? Did it just start? When the suffering started, this was the way Jesus lived every moment of every day. If you think you can wait till the suffering starts to entrust yourself to Jesus, listen, if you're not doing it now, you're crazy to think you're going to start doing it then. If you're not allowing the Holy Spirit to put something inside of you, then when you get squeezed, guess what's going to come out? What's already inside. And so what Jesus does here is Jesus has continually entrusted himself to the Father all along. And now what he's doing is continuing to entrust himself to the Father, who he knew was in control, who he knew saw the truth, who he knew would would fully exonerate him in the end. Because here's what Jesus was doing, verse 24. He was bearing in his body on the tree our sin. You see, it's our sin that caused his greatest suffering. We were the reason that Jesus endured unjust treatment. He experienced the totality of God's wrath for my sin. He took upon himself what I should have been given. Those blows, those insults, all that mistreatment that Jesus went through should have been poured out on me. And listen, I'm not just talking, guys, about the, the, the abuse that he received from the human beings. But the wrath of God that had been piled up since the beginning of time against mankind's sin, that wrath hammered on Jesus again and again and again. The wrath was the worst part. And he took that upon himself. Why would he do that? Verse 24 says, that we might die to sin. That we might be done with sin. That we might put sin in the past and say, you know what? I've got a guy who loved me enough to die in my place, and I'm going to live for that guy. I've got somebody who, who was unjustly treated because of what I've done. And now I have life because he died. I'm going to live for him. That we might die to our sin and live unto righteousness. Some folks say they want to live unto righteousness, but they're not willing to die to their sin. And can we be honest? You can't live unto righteousness until you first die to your sin. You've got to love God more than you love that sin, or you'll never be set free from that sin. When I cherish sin more than I cherish God, sin's going to win every time. Oh, I'll, I'll win a few battles when it's convenient, but I won't win consistently until I cherish God more than I cherish my sin. I can't live under righteousness until I first die unto sin. Death must precede the resurrection. New life comes out of the old life being put to death.
So he did that so that we might die to our sins. And we might live to righteousness. Here's where the issue of slavery comes back in. We are born as slaves to sin. And the only way that we can be set free from that sin is to die to that sin and have God resurrect us into new life. It's the new birth. It's being born again, Scripture says. And so he bore our sins on his tree, on, on the tree, in his body, on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You ever heard that verse taken out of context? Oh, you got cancer or by his wounds you've been healed. You, you got a disease, you got a problem, you got, by, by his wounds you've been healed. You shouldn't experience any of that, we're told by our prosperity gospel friends. Friends may be a strong word. That's not the context of this verse, is it? Saying you were dead in your sins. You were trapped and you would never be set free were it not for the grace of God, were it not for what he did for you. But because he took your sin upon himself on that tree, your spirit can live. It's been healed. This relationship with God that was broken has been healed. You've been restored. You've been brought back to the Lord. By his wounds, we are healed. His wounds were for our benefit. Which is the same reason and the same heart that he calls us to suffer unjustly. Not just for my benefit. He's not saying here, listen guys, I want you to suffer unjustly because it builds good character. It'll make you stronger. What doesn't kill you will make you stronger. That's not what Peter's saying. That's not Peter's motivation. Jesus did what he did for us, the undeserving the sinner, the enemy of God, the one that stood opposed to God, the one that mocked God, the one who went their own way and did their own thing for years and years and years. Jesus did it for us. And we are to do what Peter is calling us to do, not for us, but for others. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep. But because of what Jesus did and the grace that he's displayed, you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. You see, his gracious suffering captured our wandering hearts. What Jesus did, the gracious act that he performed on our behalf, even though we didn't deserve it and he didn't deserve it, the gracious act that he performed captured our wandering heart. His gracious endurance transformed the trajectory of our lives. When we heard the gospel and we learned how much we were loved by God, it did something in our heart to know that we were loved unconditionally. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the godly for the ungodly. And it did something to us. It drew us to him in a way that we were willing to submit ourselves to him. And he says here, you were straying, just like sheep, wandering off, doing your own thing. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man. But in the end, it leads to death. And Jesus came to reverse that. Jesus came to change that. And he says, you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Two terms there, the shepherd. We think of, of tender terms when we think about a shepherd. The shepherd who cares for the sheep, who, who, who lays down his life for the sheep. The, the shepherd, that, that, that caring one that, that gathers the sheep and keeps them corralled and leads them into the green pastures. Who walks with them through the valley of the shadow of death. We think about those images of a shepherd and it's this warm, inviting feeling. And that's part of it. But he also says the overseer, the authority of your soul. So he's not just here to be my best friend. 
He's here to guide the steps and to order my ways. See, Rob, this suffering thing is not a fun thing to talk about. This is not it at all, but he's saying that you and I need to live in such a way that we submit ourselves to those who are just and those who are unjust. Why? Because it's the grace that we demonstrate while doing that that can capture their heart and can point them to Jesus. Think about this for just a second. If all I do when I'm treated unfairly is respond the way the world responds, how will this world ever come to know the grace of Jesus Christ? If your response is no different from your neighbor's response, how will the world ever come to know the grace of God? Again, here Peter is using an extreme, horrible illustration to point us to the incredible reality and grace of God. We look at this passage and we go, man, this is, this is tough stuff. I go to work every day and I'm not treated fair. And you want me to respect my boss? That's what Peter would say. Why? Because it's a gracious thing. And as you demonstrate grace to those who don't deserve it, by the way, that's required of grace. If it's going to be grace, then it's undeserved, right? So if you're going to do that, then, then that and, and that act itself is going to, to help them to see you're following the example of Jesus, and if this is what we can do, as, as, as flawed as we are, then what about that grace of Jesus from the one that wasn't flawed? So Jesus is our example, not this world. It's his gracious attitude where he put others before himself. He put you and me before himself. His willing sacrifice for us, that, that he would take the abuse that you and I deserved. His, his continual trust in God, that, that God was in control and that God would, would exonerate him and have the final word in all things. It's Jesus' shining example that we are called to follow when we reflect his example to the world and demonstrate for them his grace. And our suffering provides us that opportunity to demonstrate the grace that we have received from God as we offer that same grace to others. And that grace is what ought to distinguish us from the world. Our lights shine the brightest when things are the darkest. And grace shines the brightest when we are doing it in the midst of the most unfair, unjust treatment imaginable. The problem is that we push back on this. We tend to resist what God's trying to, to do through us. We, we push back by trying to avoid suffering at all costs. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll just be a nice guy, but I'm just going to avoid these issues that might cause my suffering. We, we avoid it by sacrificing the truth for our comfort, by staying quiet when something needs to be said, by, by, by not offending others and, and, and calling out sin, by compromising our own character, by playing it safe. By just giving that affirming nod when you know that what's being said is not true. By trying to blend in instead of standing out. Sometimes we value our comfort more than we value God's glory. We put self over sacrifice. We'd much rather be accepted than be rejected by others. That's one extreme. We avoid it at all costs. The other extreme is that we, speak, we, we seek immediate vindication. Remember what it says? Jesus didn't didn't do that. We want to be vindicated immediately. Jesus was, was silent. Jesus didn't respond the way that they had responded to him. We want to fight to protect ourselves, my rights, my reputation, my happiness, my advancement. That's what's first and foremost on our agenda. And it causes us to push back. We're not willing to trust God to exonerate me if I stay true to him, that God will just see this through. We're, we, don't, we don't really fully believe that, that if I just commit myself to what Scripture says, it's going to be all right. We're going to make it through this, and God's going to get glory. We have a hard time waiting for future reward. We live in a world <laughs> that wants instant gratification. We, we don't farm anymore. We let somebody else do it. We just go to the store and grab it, right? Instant. There it is. I want it. Market basket. I got it. But that's not even good enough anymore because now we go to market basket, grab it, cook it ourselves. We're going, oh, sh I'll let somebody else cook it. 
<laughs> we want it right now. We, we, and if we wait in the drive-thru any longer than we think we ought to, our blood pressure begins to just boil up, right? We, we live in a society that everything's got to be instant, and that includes our gratification. And so we have a hard time waiting for rewards. Delayed gratification is unknown to most of us. But Scripture says that Jesus, for the, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. It wasn't the cross that was enjoyable, but Jesus could go through the cross because he was looking at the future and looking at those who would come. Sometimes there's a little bit more mild of a pushback. We just simply prefer my wanderings over God's ways. It's easier to go with the flow than it is to swim against the current. We, we've tasted that satisfaction of sin for the moment, and we settle for, for the satisfaction that sin brings that moment, sacrificing what could have been down the road. We forfeit eternal reward for this empty counterfeit that Satan offers us. We substitute the applause of man for that ultimate commendation of God. We live for ourselves. And this is the most heartbreaking. We live for ourselves unconcerned about the salvation of any others. Yeah, I exploded. Yeah, I said what I shouldn't have said. Yeah, I did. But you know what? He deserved it. You know what that says? I'm putting myself above that person. We value ourselves unconcerned about the salvation of others. So why is Jesus' way better? Because there's no joy that can compare with the joy of being a part of God's eternal plan, of knowing. Listen, there, there is no joy like the joy of knowing that you've been used by God to impact eternity. Can you imagine, Don't and I were talking this week, can you imagine being in heaven one day and God just making it known to you as you look across the streets of gold, you look across those that are there and to say, you know what? God used me to play a part in that person being here. God, let me encourage that one. God, let me help that one. God, let me be gracious to that one. And, and, and they're here. And I got to play a part in that, a small part by the grace of God. Jesus' way is better also because no reward can compare to the reward that he offers those who love and obey him. Scripture says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard nor has it even entered into the, the, the mind of man all that God has in store for those who believe and those that love him. We can't even begin to fathom the reward that waits for those who will do what the Scripture calls us to do. And Jesus' way is better because no love can come close to the love that he's offered us. While we were sinful and rebellious, abusive, self-centered, enemies of God, he died for us. And he died to demonstrate this great love that he wants us to demonstrate to the world. So as I wrap it up, how do we need to be transformed? How does our hearts need to change as a result of what God's word says today? I think the first thing that's got to happen is we've got to experience God's grace for ourselves. Some of you here today, you find it hard to be gracious to others because you don't fully appreciate the grace that God's given to you. It's easy to look at somebody else's sin and somebody else's failure and somebody else's faults and their flaws and never look in the mirror and say, you know what, I'm a person who was saved by grace. Let me offer grace to another. I think the first thing we've got to do is experience his grace for ourselves. It's that grace of forgiveness and it's that grace of transformation that, that God takes us from where we are and he makes us into who he wants us to be. I think the second thing that we've got to do if we're going to be changed is to offer that same grace to others. To those who are good, but also to those who are bad toward us. Those who deserve our love the least are the ones who need our love the most. And sometimes that grace can best be offered through suffering. The song we sang right before I came up talked about that, right? If in this life suffering is required, and Lord, I'm all in. It's easy to sing. It's, it's, it's hard to do. And I think the only other thing I would say this morning 
is that the other way that we've got to be transformed is the same way Jesus approached it, and that is we entrust ourselves. We continually entrust our whole lives to God. If you think you know best, you'll never entrust your life to God. But if you see today where you're falling short, you see today where, where there's needs for change, then, then at that moment, at that moment, God can step in and do what we cannot do. He can help us to forgive those who have wounded us, to be gracious toward them, to love them in spite of their flaws, and to let that grace begin to transform their hearts into what it needs to be. So here's our, our closing questions for today. Is God's glory and someone else's salvation worthy of your suffering? Let me ask it again. Is God's glory and somebody else's salvation worth whatever you may have to go through to be a part of seeing that as a, as a reality? What if God's purpose for your suffering was to bring him glory? Is that worth it? What if his purpose for your suffering is that you show grace and somebody else comes to know the grace of God and through that they get saved? And finally, can you trust God even in your suffering? You won't do it in your suffering if you haven't learned to do it apart from suffering. We trust God in the good days and we cling to God in those tough days. And God shows up and he does what we can't do. So, if you failed in these areas the way that I have failed in these areas, right now is a time for us to repent, to have a change of heart and to come back to God and say, God, I have failed this miserably. I need you to change my heart. Help me to, to realize just how much grace you poured out on me so that I can be gracious to those who've hurt me. And then and only then can we offer grace to those that mistreat us. I want us to pray together. And I would ask this morning as we pray that you be honest with God, that you don't just shut the thing down and say, okay, I've, got a, I've endured another sermon and uh, made it through this one. I'm going to get out of here before I feel too much conviction. What if this morning you were real honest with God? And what if this morning his grace gripped your heart in such a way that you were able to offer grace to those who deserve it the least but need it the most? How would our world begin to change if Christians learned that even in the midst of unjust treatment that the grace of God can triumph? Let's pray.